Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. Hi, this is Lisa, and I have a new guest with me here today. This is Ron DeMarco. Say hi, Ron. Hi, everybody. Hey, um, I'm so glad you made time to come on the show. Um, If you wanted to take a quick second and just kind of introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm Ron DeMarco. I found you through a mutual friend of ours, uh, Zaki Hassan, and I've been listening to your podcast for a while. Uh, I love what you're doing. I love the uh, the idea of it, just getting fans together who love these movies. Um, I think I've, I've read that part of your your reason for doing this was uh, there's been a lot of negativity, obviously, on the internet when it comes to to fandom. So putting out something out there that's uh, very positive was uh, was very appealing, and I think you're doing a great job, and I'm, I'm I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad you came on to discuss this movie. I really do appreciate that. And uh, you know, um, what what movie are we discussing today? Uh, we are discussing one of my absolute favorite films of all time. It's the Brad Bird's 1999 classic, The Iron Giant. Excellent. Yeah. I'm so glad you picked this film. I I feel like, so we've done a couple animated films, uh, an anime film and a Pixar film. And I think it's interesting uh, that we're going with this one because it's, you know, Warner Brothers, it's like, is this pre-Pixar? Like, did Pixar exist yet? Oh, Pixar definitely existed, yep. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember the advent of Pixar. Um, and yeah, this is this is definitely one of the... In fact, what I've doing my homework to, to come on this show is fun because it's, it's all stuff I've known at some point, but it was nice to get a refresher. But apparently they tried to kick off uh, an animated division within Warner Brothers. Um, mm. And this was the one... Like, I think they made two, a movie I'd never heard of, like Quest for Camelot, I believe it was called. And then this one. And Quest for Camelot did so badly that, you know, we'll probably talk about this later in the conversation, but it, it kind of put the nail in the coffin for the whole animated division. And, and hence, you know, there's a lot of backstory to, to how this, this film was produced because of that. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, when was the first time you saw this movie? I first saw it, I wish I could say it was the day it was was released, but I had a family event that I can't remember what specifically it was, but that Friday I didn't get to go, but I did go to a matinee the next Saturday morning. So I was, uh, I was, I was there at the very beginning. That's awesome. I'm trying to remember how old I was when I saw this because I remember it coming out. And I think at the time this movie came out, I probably would have been uh, probably, let's see, maybe about 16 or 17. Yeah. I think. So I was aware of it. And at this time I really closely followed animated films. I was really into animation. 
uh, as a kid. So I think that I saw it in theaters. That's I, I believe so. If not, I'm sure I checked it out several times uh, on either VHS or DVD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's kind of starting to be a blur now when exactly all that happened. Well, but, this, yeah. this is one of those movies that's, that's really stuck with me. And I there's a lot of key points um, or markers in my life re- regarding this movie. And I think that's why I love it so much. Um, but this is one of the rare movies that I, I loved so much upon its, its release. And I was already geeking out about movies and animation. And like you, I followed a lot of animation, love, love Pixar, love what they were doing. Uh, and just have general, I've been a huge comic book fan since my, my early youth. So um, anything to do with animation or comics or anything like that, sci-fi has always been something that's, that's really drawn me to it. So I was following the pre-production of this movie up until its release. So I was aware that, uh, that it was coming and that it wasn't getting a lot of, um, uh, it, it didn't have a lot of marketing behind it. So 1999, pre-social media, uh, I blasted everybody I knew at the time um, with a mass email saying, you have to go see this movie. Like I, it just, it really, it really spoke to me. And at that, I was, you know, mid, mid to early twenties at that point. Um, and, and I don't know, for some reason, something I wouldn't do today, I wouldn't go out and freely market for some corporate giant. But back then I loved this movie so much. I told everybody I knew you have to go see this movie. This is something, um, that, that you have to see. And I think because of that, I successfully got I think three or four of my friends to actually go and follow my advice through that mass email. So <laughs> I can pat myself on the back for that. Yeah, you know, when you were saying earlier that uh, that it wasn't doing very well for WB, I had this feeling, especially as a kid and as a teenager, that Disney was just such a juggernaut. You know, that in in terms of animation at that time, they were really hard to compete with. It felt like they almost squashed everybody else. <laughs> or at least that's the perception I had as a kid, you know, when it came to like, I remember really being in love with like the Don Bluth films and, you know, just anything that was a little bit different than what Disney was selling, I was kind of into because I felt that animation had so many different places it could go. And I liked how, you know, this movie doesn't follow a formula. It, it's a little bit different than, you know, there's no like, uh, I guess, song and dance numbers. Um, there's not really any like cute little animals, I guess. Right. I mean, I guess the giant kind of counts, but it just, it doesn't follow that. And it's touching on something that's a little bit different, um, maybe a little bit riskier in that sense. And I really, really like craved and wanted that at that point. So it just kind of disappointed me when things like this didn't take off the way I felt like they should. No, you're, you're, <laughs> and you're, so, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I, think, I think that's what drove me uh, to do what I did. I, I it, it was different. It wasn't like a typical Disney movie. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I like the Disney movies and there's a lot of, a lot of ones that I, I adore, but same here, same here. I'm not a Disney hater at all, yeah. even despite what I'm saying. <laughs> no, no, yeah, but I get what you're saying. I mean, there's, there's, and that's what I love about animation. You know, you know, a lot of people will say, Oh, you love, animation well no I, I love I love the I love the medium and I love that you can do it's limitless it's limitless potential that's why I think I loved comic books so much and everyone thinks that you know comics are um, 
I think people are, are, you know, waking up to, you know, how, how much potential they have, but, you know, trying to make that distinction of genre versus medium to people, you know, this, this animated medium is, is ripe for any type of storytelling that there is. And, and like you, I, I'm glad when there's things that, uh, that are out there that don't follow what people expect. And this was certainly, you know, a, a very good example of that. Yeah, definitely. Well, with that, um, I think I'll jump into the synopsis really quick. Um, and just kind of give the give our listeners just a quick rundown, and then we'll kind of start going into our quick facts. Sure. Um, so here we go. 1999, The Iron Giant. In this animated adaption of Ted Hughes' Cold War fable, a giant alien robot crash lands near the small town of Rockwell, Maine in 1957. Exploring the area, a local nine-year-old boy, Hogarth, discovers the robot and soon forms an unlikely friendship with him. When a paranoid government agent, Kent Mansley, becomes determined to destroy the robot, Hogarth in a beatnik, Dean McCopin, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen his last name before, uh, must do what they can to save the misunderstood machine. That That's it right there. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think, though, it, it uh, you read that to someone and... If they haven't seen the movie, I don't know if that's going to sell the movie to them. I mean, there's sure it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> it's not really exactly. I mean, I've heard you know, I've I've read comparisons. You know, this is just ET with a giant robot. It's ET in a different time time uh, in a different time in, in history, um, and I think those are valid comments or criticisms of the movie. But I I think what what draws people to this movie or what people love about this movie is I think it does such a great job of establishing um, and making a believable relationship between this boy and this robot in, in a completely unbelievable scenario. It's just it, it, that the characterization in this movie is, is just something that it's, it's always, I think that's, that's what, what drives me and, and, and is one of the things that I just love about this movie. I completely agree. And uh, I also think that, you know, watching this, like I said, as a teenager, um, you know, I, I understood uh, history, but I think it takes, you know, me being a little bit older and going back and revisiting it to really kind of understand the nuance there of, you know, picking up on a little bit more the the paranoia of the, the government agent and how people would respond and, and the mindset people had during that time. And I think that's woven into the story in a really interesting way, in addition to, uh, you know, the really... Um, I guess, charming relationship that the boy has with the robot. I, I just, I liked that layer going back and, and watching it. How, how long had it been since you, I, I know you, you watched it recently in preparation for this, but how long had it been since you'd seen it? I mean, I, I was trying to remember when the last time I saw, saw it was because, well, I was watching it with my husband. He said, I don't think I've ever seen this before. Oh, really? And I was like, and I looked at him and I said, <laughs> really? You know, and, and, and he and I have been together for 12 years. So that means <laughs> at least not in 12 years. Um, and, and I really had to think about it. I think I got really into it when it came out. And I think I saw it several times when it hit home release. But I think since then, I probably have not revisited it. Yeah, and it, it was surprising to me that I hadn't done that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad that uh, I could initiate uh, a fond remembrance. You know, be, you know, getting you back to see this again. For me, yes. I've, I've seen this. Uh, I've lost count of how many times I've seen this. Uh, I know, you know. Again, with my mass email to my friends, I went back and I took 
I think four friends and family members. I, I've seen, I, I saw the movie, I think four or five times upon initial release in the theater. And I never do that. Even, you know, I'm, I'm not a multiple viewing theater person, but, uh, you know, back then I was, I was doing my little part to help the bottom line of this movie upon its initial release. And I think I've seen it probably three at least three more times, you know, anytime I know Fathom events did, you know, the, the signature release a few years ago. So I got, I got to see it again and I've got two young kids. So, you know, I've, I've popped it in a a number of times for them. So I've seen it quite a few times, even in the past, I hate to say it, but it's 18 years since this movie was released. That's crazy sounding. No, ni- <laughs> it doesn't almost, seem almost like 19. That long ago. Yeah, I know. I, I when the numbers get <laughs> into the late teens and multiple decades, it's like okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's jump into a couple quick facts here. I'll share some, and if if you have some that you want to throw in, you definitely can too. Um, the last name for Annie and Hogarth Hughes is an homage to Ted Hughes, the author of the original children's book upon which the movie is based. Um, I'm sure you knew that. Yeah, I did, I did know that. I, uh, I, I do have a, a copy of that book. Uh, oh, excellent. It's vastly different um, from oh, really? what Brad Bird produced. Yep. It's, uh, it takes place in, in England, for one. Um, the, giant, oh. the giant is much more verbose. Um, he fights... He fights. Uh, it's been. I've only read it once or twice. I mean, I think I love this movie so much it was hard to consume that story in its format. Even though you know, I, I totally respect source material, but uh, sure, um, he ends up fighting some crazy beast at the end and saving. Like, like that's his event that uh, that that endears him to the to the to the village people. Um, mm. And and here, you know, in in our movie that we've seen, it's uh, you know the beast becomes the the nuclear bomb, which I think it symbolically works on like you were saying earlier about the cold war backdrop it just works on on on, i think a much better level i mean i I hate to to disparage any source material but i think what we got in this movie um is was i think they made good changes and good decisions were made to to make the movie that that they did no i i agree with you because just from hearing about the book uh i think you lose a lot of that meaning in the original like like you said i think it's great a great place to start, and definitely the source material is always important. But um, but I think it makes the movie a little bit more maybe relatable, yeah, um, and yeah, and just maybe uh, I guess a story that that the audience could connect with a little bit deeper than if the monster or the robot just punches a monster. <laughs> that, that starts to feel like like that's just you know a, a sort of a generic story almost. Like this this is personal i think yeah that you got to spend time you know where did this other monster come from um you know all, all these things that you aren't necessary i think with that that context of setting it in in the 50s cold war um you know if you're understanding by doing those things you're understanding what the uh the idea or the the symbolism of the nuclear bomb means just by doing those two things Right, definitely. So my my second fact is, and it's kind of touching on what we talked about earlier, that although the movie received high praise from critics, it was deemed a failure at the box office and only garnered about $23 million uh, on a $70 million budget. Uh, the low earnings were due partly to the fact that the film debuted the same weekend as The Sixth Sense. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> that ex- yeah, that explains a lot 6th. right there. <laughs> yeah, August 6, 1999. I'm wondering if someone had asked me, are you going to the movies? Are you going to see The Sixth Sense? I'm sure someone at some point asked me that. But I'm like, no, I'm going to go see this see, other movie. <laughs> this is actually 
Yeah, and this is actually ca- casting doubt in my mind if I saw it in theaters because I know I saw The Sixth Sense in theaters. Like I clearly remember seeing that. <laughs> so I might have seen it on home release now. <laughs> um, that's just one of those movies you you know you definitely remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah. To touch upon that, uh, so the fact that it, it it made so little money. I mean, I I was doing some reading, and you know, Brad Bird has uh, he's commented a few times on. Obviously, they were disappointed, but one thing I found um, very funny. So, not funny, but it just it, it's like a coulda, shoulda, woulda. But they had they wanted to delay the movie, um, but Warner Brothers, like I was saying earlier, was at the point where they were. Um, pretty much, you know, boarding up the door for their animation division because of the the, the two movies that they, they did so poorly. Um, but w- the test audiences for this, I guess, were, were through the roof. Like they were getting such great feedback. They didn't realize what they had until they started getting all this great feedback from the test audiences. So one of the executives wanted to actually delay this movie so they'd actually get their ducks in a row and actually do a proper marketing um, plan for this movie. And they reached out to, to Brad and he, he said, no, let's, let's release it. And I guess you know, the funny thing is that he, he went back and told his animation staff that this is ha- this had happened. He's like, yeah, they listened to me. And in hindsight, he's like, yeah, they probably shouldn't have listened to me that we probably should have delayed, delayed <laughs> this and let them do their marketing magic to, to get the, uh, the eyeballs to the theater to see this. And yeah, we might've had a, a different, uh, theatrical reaction to it. Gosh, yeah. I, I think it's hard. And I, I think it's hard also for studios sometimes to know what to do with these kind of movies that are so different from from like we, what we were talking about earlier. They they don't have it, it's a warm, fuzzy movie, but it's not, you know, it, it doesn't have like names that audiences automatically recognize like Snow White or Pinocchio. Um it's it's different and so they probably were hesitant but then thinking okay well maybe if we invest in these characters and market them you know then people when they walk in they'll kind of know what they're walking into but i'm sure it's hard to have perspective when you're the director and you've been knee deep in the entire production the whole time oh yeah and another thing I, interesting yeah. thing i read is he was i think they had like a third of the normal budget that at the time would have been granted to an animated feature he had a third of the budget and half the time is a, a thing i read a couple of oh times. my gosh so yeah exactly like just as you said he was you know up to his eyeballs and doing everything and this was his first uh feature length film um that's right so mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean hindsight's twenty twenty, but uh, I, I guess they uh, they had or scrapped plans for a Burger King, you know, toy Happy Meal tie in. Um, so they had some plans, but they didn't come to fruition. And yeah, if they had only de- you know maybe delaying the movie to Christmas time would have been the smart move, and they could have could have we, we could have had a, d- a different experience with this movie. Did you cringe reading that part that you could have had? A little Iron Giant Burger King collectible? Well, no, because I actually, uh, I was such a huge fan of this movie. I was a poor college student at the time, but I did manage to snag, uh, you remember the Warner Brothers Studio stores? Heck yeah, I do. <laughs> I figured you would. Um, they, had, uh, they had a bunch of, what I am kicking myself is not buying every Iron Giant a piece of merchandise that they did have there, but I did manage to snag. I think he's like a 12 or 14 inch uh, Iron Giant that they put out at the release time. So I wow. still have that, and I'm happy to have that. And I also um, I did buy the uh, the clamshell VHS when it came out. 
And that came, one of the additions of that came with a little uh, four inch Iron Giant that I have right on my desk right now as we're talking. Oh, that's awesome. You need to send me pictures of those two things. I don't think I've ever seen that. Although we may see it again after Ready Player One. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I haven't <laughs> seen that yet. I know. Oh my I, gosh, I will say nothing. <laughs> no, I, I, in doing the, the, the research to have this discussion tonight, I did, I did spoil or get spoiled by some of the stuff. So I know, I know he plays a big part. Um, you know, for anyone who's listening to this that hasn't seen Ready Player One, I don't want to say anything else. But you know, I know in the promotional material, you know that he's part of the movie so i don't yeah, think we're really spoiling yeah. anything there right i was surprised that like you're saying that he played a pretty big part um because this is one of those movies there, there's movies growing up that you kind of think only you're aware of for some reason um i guess because this you know did underperform at the box office and it's not you know beauty and the beast i kind of had this idea that maybe only me and like a few other geeks know about this <laughs> yeah, movie same. so i was kind of <laughs> i was kind of surprised when i saw the promotional stuff and then even more surprised when i saw the movie um so so yeah i think you'll be pleased that's all i'm gonna okay, say okay okay well I, like i said in saying earlier how i see saw this movie so many times and you know each time i saw or each time i went to the theater i dragged someone new with me to see it because i just wanted more people to to see it the the last time I saw it in the theater on its initial run is what was by myself. And I, I wish I could remember the name of this comic strip, but there was this one like, you know, daily comic strip in a newspaper. Um, and I was reading it and this person was just having a bad day. And I don't, this person must have been reflecting on something that happened, but they, uh, they're having a bad day and they basically just screw it all. And the last panel is just them at the box office saying one for the Iron Giant, please. And I'm like, that was me. I did that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, you need to find that again. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to find what that is and, and send that to you. And uh, for sure. And, but you're, I, to, to, I just want to emphasize, like, I totally agree. Like, I, I, all, I also thought I was in a bubble on this. Like, I, you know, I, it's very rare to meet someone with as, as, as much exuberance for one of these things that uh, you think you're you're the only one that, that really loves. Yeah, definitely. Um, did you have any other quick facts you wanted to throw yeah, in? Yeah, I did. I wanted to mention – so what I love about this movie is that it, it, uh, it pushed me to find out more about uh, some of the history of animation. So the I want to mention Frank – Johnson and I may be getting their names wrong, but they're they're Frank and Ollie. Uh, they produced a documentary about them, but they're one of the the nine old men that worked at Disney from like the 1930s up into the 70s and 80s. Um, mm -hmm. They were mentors to to Brad Bird, and they they're actually wow. in the movie. The two train conductors, when the giant gets hit by the train, that come out. That's Frank and Ollie. Uh, those two train conductors oh, that come so cool. out exactly, and so. Uh, Brad Bird put them in the – so the next movie that he made obviously was a massive success, The Incredibles. I don't even think I need to mention that. But um, he puts uh, – Frank and Ollie are in The Incredibles as well. Like there's a scene at the very end um, when um, the family gets together and they're fighting that last villain at the end. Um, the two old men that, that say there's no school like the old school, that's Frank and Ollie again. So he got to do that twice in two of his, uh, his big budget movies. That is really cool. Oh, one more. I did not know that. I'm oh, glad to it. share one other thing about The Incredibles that has an Iron Giant reference. Um, 
So when Mrs. Incredible is flying the plane, she's giving her, and they're about to, to crash with the kids. She gives the call numbers of the plane and it's IG Niner Niner, Iron Giant 99. Oh, wow. <laughs> Great Easter yeah, egg. I'm, I'm, I hope, uh, I hope I, uh, I hope not everybody knew that. So I hope uh, whoever's listening. Uh, <laughs> well, I didn't. So. Well, good. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> well, that's a perfect segue. I, I actually wanted to talk about uh, the director next, uh, Brad Bird. I have to admit to you, because I haven't seen this in so long, I did not make that connection that he was the director of Incredibles, Incredibles 2, Ratatouille, biggest surprise for me, Mission Impossible Ghost mm-hmm. Protocol. I, I was just sitting there like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, I... I I've known of Brad Bird since this movie, and when that was announced that he was doing Mission Impossible, like I was told, like that was a head scratcher. Like, what? Huh? How does he go from Ratatouille <laughs> to Mission Impossible? <laughs> it happens sometimes, but yeah, it, it's kind of you know, in a way, validating too to see the career that he's had because you know this this movie, as we said, you know, it underperformed and it kind of flew under the radar, but. Clearly, as as we know, critics, they liked it a lot and people saw a lot of potential in him. And, you know, that's great that he's had the career that he's had. Yeah, his talent was recognized and and thankfully so, because we've gotten some some great movies out of him. And, you know, I, I, I did. I went to go see that Mission Impossible movie specifically because it was directed by Brad Bird. I was probably like, you know, oh. one of five people who went as a Brad Bird fan versus like a Mission Impossible fan. <laughs> um, but I, I, I liked it. I know he also did... Uh, that other the other live action movie, um, Tomorrowland. Um, oh, that's have you, right. Have you seen yeah, that? I did I, I I think that I have. I think, but in my head, I'm I'm sort of confusing it with Sky Captain. Oh, right, right. <laughs> but but I believe I have. Yeah, I, I love the man. I love his work. That movie I saw. I remember enjoying it, but it was to me kind of forgettable. Like I don't in, in seeing mm-hmm. in remembering that he did that. I. I didn't remember he did that until I was reading through his uh, his filmography today, and uh, yeah, just it didn't. I liked it, but it didn't really stick with me. I couldn't really tell you uh, anything specific about it. But yeah, he's he's been he's had a great career. I'm really looking forward to uh, Incredibles too, because when going from this movie and then seeing him do in- the Incredibles in 2004, like that was like I again like I, it it confirmed and validated, like you said, you know, how, how good this guy is. And I, I really love the Incredibles and I can't wait to see what he's going to, what he's going to do with Incredibles too. Right. I, um, with Incredibles, I believe that at the time when that came out, uh, I mean, I've, I've always loved Batman, but I haven't always been a big like superhero comic book reader. And I think that movie is so impressive to me because at the time when it came out, I still really, really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, whenever you have sort of like a family unit type situation with superheroes, that could be exhausting and not entertaining. Like I feel that there's another movie out there that could have been made. That's not good. And Incredibles is made perfectly. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. Like it pulls in everybody. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's done so well that I think, you know, typical comic book superhero fans really enjoy it. But then anyone who just loves a good story, I think is, is fully Mm -hmm. entertained by that movie. And that's, if you can do, you know, genre, type material genre fiction in a way that appeals to the masses. I mean, that's what, you know, Marvel's doing, you know, making billions these days, but um, it's, it's, yeah, it's that's a, true. It was a rare <laughs> feat back then. And it was, it was, I was happy to see it done. 
Well, did you have any more uh, facts that you wanted to talk about with uh, Brad Bird? Um, specifically with Brad Bird, no. I do have a I did have a couple more things about the uh, the movie itself, but um, oh, go for it, go for it. Um, the giant himself was fully CGI in this movie. Um, I don't know if that was uh, something you knew about, but uh, that was uh, very surprising when I first learned that. I, I was surprised when I saw that in the behind the scenes. Definitely. Uh, I had always assumed he was just animated. They did such a good job. They uh, they really fit him yeah. into the, the context of the traditional um, animated world. Um, and it, it really worked well. And a, a cool, like a geeky fact that I, I learned was that apparently they reduced. So when they rendered him in a scene with other characters, they rendered him at half the typical uh, frame rate that they would for a CGI mm. character, so that he wouldn't be as see he wouldn't be so jarring and you know right next to a uh, a hand drawn character. And I thought that was that makes that was sense. Cool. I'm like, oh, that's that that makes a lot of sense. That was a good good workaround. Yeah, because uh, when it's hand cell drawn animation, it's usually 24 frames per second, right? I imagine it's and, faster for CGI. Yeah, exactly. And they well, they did him at 12, is what I read today. Oh, okay, okay. I think be, yeah, I, I'm not sure of the technicalities behind it, but I guess apparently because of the, uh, um, like how, uh, I don't know, I'm losing my words here to describe this, but uh, how probably detailed a, a CGI character is, uh, they had to reduce mm -hmm. that so that it would fit into the, the hand cell drawn world. That makes sense. I will say it was really refreshing to see, uh, you know, the, the hand painted cells again, like, I, I don't know that that when I was a kid, it, that was something that I had a really hard time letting go of. You know, as as things started to move into Pixar and to be completely CG, it, it used to actually like genuinely bum me out no, I <laughs> because I had spent so much time watching like all these documentaries and learning about the yes. process. <laughs> I was like, no. What you mean? There's not a, a a person flipping pages to draw like one frame to the next anymore. Like, how are how are we getting rid of this? <laughs> so I want to say that this is maybe one of the last hand-drawn uh, animated features. I know Warner Brothers – or not Warner Brothers. Uh, Disney did um, that Princess and the Frog. And I want to say that was one of their last traditionally animated um, features. Mm. I didn't get time to do, do the research on what, if anything, there is coming from the major studios in terms of traditional animation. I, I, I don't know if there is anything anymore. Right. And even if it was, I think it would probably be more something akin to f like flash type animation where it's looks animated, but it's still on the made on the computer. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. I remember like reading all these books about, you know, how hard and how complicated it would be to set up scenes and like layer them. And, you know, I got really used to that and really excited about that. And then it kind of as soon as I was old enough to like comprehend all that stuff, it was rapidly changing. <laughs> so, so we're getting yeah. older and the world is changing and there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Um, <laughs> did, did you have any other uh, facts you wanted to throw in? Um, not just a couple. I, I have some personal observations. I don't know if the, um, so this was a PG rated movie. And I remember being, you know, mm -hmm. even though I was uh, given that it was PG and I was in my mid twenties. Um, I was still shocked at the time to hear the words "hell" and "damn it" in a cartoon. 
I was like, whoa, like, yeah. oh, I don't like, I don't know if I would bring kids to this. And now I'm like, oh, whatever, like that they'd be fine to see this. But, uh, <laughs> but back then it was like, whoa, this is, uh, this is different. This is one of those things that makes it uh, different from the Disney movies. They you know, character, characters spore a little bit. Yeah, definitely. It kind of reminds me of uh, when I was talking about the Don Bluth films earlier. I remember being really excited that in like Secret of Nim in that movie, a character says damn. And I remember like really holding on to that <laughs> yes. as a kid. I was like, oh, this movie is hard. <laughs> like <laughs> there's blood and there's you know, damn. And, uh, and, and, so, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it is jarring though because 99% – uh, that's not a real figure, but I feel like it's close. Um, of movies, you know, there was no cursing at all. Again, I think this this idea that it's 100% for kids, 100% aimed at kids, and not a lot of really nuance added to it, you know, uh, a lot of times kept it sort of in this really strict, you know, arena where you could only do and say so many things. And I, I even think like the scene where uh, Harry Connick Jr.'s characters like unzipping his fly is kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you know what? You're, you're absolutely right about that. <laughs> it was a, an, an hilarious scene, but you're right. Like that's, I don't think you would ever see anything like that in a, in a traditional Disney movie. Cool. Well, um, I, I guess let's talk a little bit about the cast really quick. Cause I, this is another area where I was kind of surprised um, when uh, I was looking up everybody's name. Uh, first of all, completely forgot that Vin Diesel was the Iron Giant. <laughs> that is insane I to do, me. I, he, he reprised <laughs> his role in Ready Player One, as far as I understand. Oh, really? Yeah, was, okay. I thought you were going to say reprised in Guardians because, you know, Groot. Oh, uh, yeah, no, he did do a lot more he lines. Did, he did do that too. But yeah, apparently he he, yeah. uh, he went back and voiced the Giant for uh, for Ready Player One. That's amazing. I highly recommend watching this somewhat awkward behind the scenes video I was watching right before we started recording that Vin Diesel hosts. I saw that. It was, it was like, okay, yeah, okay. I've, I haven't seen it in years, mind you, but yes, it was like a totally like <laughs> entertainment tonight. Like, oh, I, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about and I haven't seen it. I haven't seen that in probably like 15, 20 years. <laughs> You got to watch it. It's so weird. He's he's obviously like in front of a green screen and he keeps like turning to the camera and just saying just stuff he doesn't sound comfortable saying. And it's it's pretty funny. Yeah, I think he even yeah. drops into the giant voice a few times. He's like, oh, you needed some computer effects to make you sound more like the giant Vin. Yeah. Or, or there's like a part where he says, it's not easy. It's really hard. And then they show him just going rock. <laughs> You're like, oh. But yeah, it's 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 really great. But um, but yeah, Vin Diesel. So you know, obviously we know him from Triple X, uh, the Fast and the Furious movies. Uh, first time I ever saw him was Pitch Black. Um, yeah, I've not seen Pitch Black. I've I've heard you know snide comments on the internet that this was Vin Diesel's best role, and I'm I'm not one to disagree. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, He's really good at these characters that say one or two words. <laughs> <laughs> he nailed the market in that. Yeah. I mean, you know, Fast and Furious definitely has a soft spot in my heart. It, it is, you know, the, that franchise is pretty crazy, um, makes a ton of money, and I do enjoy watching those movies, but I don't know that his performance in it is <laughs> the main reason. Um, right. He's, he's not the draw. Right. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I really, I, I think, I think that uh, Tim Gunn must've seen this movie and thought, okay, I have my Groot automatically. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, that's probably it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 re- I guess I, I liked Vin Diesel in Boiler Room. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but that I was that have. that underground stock market movie right. he did. I think Giovanni Ribisi was in that too. Um, but that that was good. I enjoyed him in that. I think Ben Affleck might be in that movie too. Um, but he he was that. I'm I'm. And yeah, I, I, I'm not one to argue with anyone who says that this is his best performance. My favorite movie, he's in it. It's got to be his best performance. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then, man, seeing Harry Connick Jr., I mean, that, that's one of the names that I always, you know, remembered he was in this. But it also, like, dates the movie a little bit because, man, he was such a big deal at the time that this came out. He was, and I. But I gotta say, I. I don't know if it's you know my my rose colored glasses and my love for this movie, but I I couldn't see anyone else playing Dean McCoppin than Harry Connick Jr. He just he sounds the part. He sounds like he stepped out of the 1950s to me. Um, I mean, I wasn't alive then, but to me, he it just he nailed the role. I I, I have no issues, and, and in fact, I, I love him in this role. No, I completely agree. I think he sounded very natural and so natural sometimes that I'm almost he doesn't sound like a cartoon character he just sounds like he's being himself it, it seems almost like they wrote the role for him yeah I can't I, I, I can't say that I've seen him in a lot of other things um, so I don't know his speaking voice that well I, I have a couple of, of albums of his so I know his singing voice um, but yeah I, I guess yeah so you're saying that that's pretty much how he speaks naturally that's the perception I have. <laughs> Okay, I'll say gotcha, that gotcha. <laughs> it seemed natural to me. Um, yeah, I I guess for maybe our younger audience, uh, I was telling my husband I feel like Harry Connick Jr. was kind of like the Michael Bublé of his time. <laughs> you, you know? you na- yes, you nailed it. <laughs> yeah, because that, uh, that's an apt analogy, right? Uh, you know, I had a little note down here that because of his his singing style was so similar to Frank Sinatra, he had the nickname the Vice Chairman of the Board. Uh, and uh, yeah, and Sinatra had nothing but praise for Connick. Isn't that kind of weird to think about that? You know that they were like around at the same time, sort of. Yeah, exactly. No, you're right. Yeah. That that does. I can see why that his his name in your mind dates things because yeah, he's he's living in a world or he he existed in a world where you know his professional life was was able to be commented on by Frank Sinatra. Exactly. So yeah, that totally, Totally dates him. And just called him <laughs> the kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the kid. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I agree. I really like, uh, you know, the Dean's role in this movie. Um, although I will say, just a funny aside, uh, I was like, I, I completely understand why this kid, you know, sneaks off to hang out with Dean. But, you know, from an outsider perspective, <laughs> it could be a little strange. He's like <laughs> sneaking off onto his property and hanging out with them and then the mom's finds out and she's totally cool with it. But you know what? It's the fifties. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. It was a different time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Totally something that would not happen today. Like if my kids were sneaking out and, you know, visiting some random person that I never met before, there'd be, uh, there'd be some issues there. Right. Right. <laughs> but, but I really do enjoy him in that role for sure. Um, I was going to say too, the biggest, another big surprise uh, for some reason did not pick up on the fact that Annie Hughes was voiced by Jennifer Aniston, like at all. Yeah, she was a bit, obviously that was right in the middle of her friend's um, career mm-hmm. and she was a huge name then. Um, I'm, I, 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 I don't know if she's done any more animation. I, I think she did well in this role. I don't, 
but yeah, it's not something that screams uh, Jennifer Aniston when you, when you're listening to to the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. This was during like the height of her friend's fame, and she's mostly done. You know, stuck to rom coms. I think I, I don't think I've seen her in a lot of a lot of other types of movies. In fact, I had a, a fact here that said as of 2018, she has not appeared in a Best Picture nominated film. Which I thought was like kind ah, of a mean that, fact. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's I, not one her publicist is putting out. Right. There. I, I mean, I think that she has you know her market and does really really well with that, and you know obviously has been extremely successful with it. You know, maybe she just prefers that to to some other types of films. But I, I definitely think from her performance in this, she could do more animated movies if she hasn't already. I thought the exact same thing. I was going through, you know, her her filmography, and uh, I I didn't. I, th- I think I saw one other animated thing that she did. That um, wasn't something that I'd seen, but uh, I thought the exact same thing. Like she could easily move into. I mean, not that she needs to, but if she wanted to. I mean, the, I think. People, I think actors these days are no longer afraid of attaching themselves to animated properties. If you get, uh, I mean, Tom Hanks has been doing Toy Story for over 20 years now. And, right. uh, you know, big name actors still do what they want to do uh, in live action movies. But, you know, they find this other avenue that uh, that affords them every measure of success, too. So, yeah, she, she could probably do it if she wanted to. Yeah, and and that's really like you're saying. I didn't have too much more in her. the The only other actor that I wrote down was, of course, Hogarth Hughes, uh, Eli Marienthal. I'm so yeah, afraid I'm saying his name wrong, but <laughs> I would say Marienthal. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not the best uh, pronunciation expert. <laughs> <laughs> but when I looked at his IMDb, I didn't see you know a ton of stuff on there, which I was kind of surprised by a little bit because. I thought he did a really, really good job as Hogarth. Um, he seemed like a really, you know, smart kid that really, he, he delivered his lines really well. He, it seemed like he really understood them and was carrying them really well. I'm just kind of surprised I didn't see his name come up in a lot more animated films, at least. What what I did, oh, right, in terms of animation, no, I, mm-hmm. I, I, didn't, I didn't see that either. I do know that uh, his, his career uh, involved him playing – um, Stifler's little brother in the American Pie movies. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I've only seen the first of that series. I laughed, but I don't know if that movie would speak to me the way that it did back then. But Right. Uh, <laughs> but again, it's one of those things that I know that because, I mean, he's not a big name actor. It's not someone whose career you would typically follow. But, you know, I love this movie. So anyone attached to it, you know, I, I, I end up, you know, learning all of these useless facts and tidbits about. Yeah, I saw that too. Um, yeah, and I think I'm right with you. I, I remember American Pie being a huge deal when it came out, and I was pretty much right around the demographic age of somebody that would be really into it. But I think after that first movie, I, I was kind of like, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I think for me, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Michigan, and that movie took place on the western side of the state. So there was oh, that, gotcha. that local connection uh, to, to seeing that. And, you know, that's that's why I think, uh, you know, that, that movie – probably played a little bit better in the Midwest than it did. Uh, I mean, no, that movie was a huge hit. What am I talking about? No, but you're right. I mean, when you have a, a connection where it's sort of in your backyard, you're always going to see it a little bit differently. True. Yeah. I'm and sure I think it's really that... different from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, can we, there's two, well, well, two other actors I'd like to, to mention though. That's the, you know, um, 
Kent, Kent, or, uh, Kent Mansley by uh, Christopher McDonald. Um, a funny personal story for that, like <laughs> going back to people following this movie or following the careers of people who were involved in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. I had, I had a relative say to me once, like I told, I was telling her that, you know, this is one of my favorite movies. And her first thing she says to me is, Oh, you, you, you saw it because you're a huge Christopher McDonald fan. And I'm thinking, no, why, why would you, I didn't go see this because I'm a huge, uh, uh, Christopher McDonald. I, I, am I getting his name wrong? I think I might be getting his name wrong. No, no, you got it. You got it. Um, I, he's one of those people that, like, the second I see him, I recognize him. Right, right. I mean, he was he was in that um, um, that movie, that Adam Sandler movie, Happy Gilmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just I found that very humorous. That that's of all the things that you could have picked out for someone to love this movie about. <laughs> I guarantee you, it's not because I'm a Christopher McDonald fan. Right. And, um, and I also want to mention uh, John Mahoney. Um, you know, he was the dad oh, on, on Frasier. Yeah, we just lost him this year. So Gosh. he did uh, – I thought he did an excellent job in this. You know, the few lines that he had, totally believable. One of the swearers in the movie, you know, he says, damn it. And uh, oh, another thing that he says that uh, I guess, you know, shocked me for being in a, in a movie is he, he tells Kent, you know, you blew millions of dollars out of your butt. Like, <laughs> that would not fly in a Disney movie. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at, uh, I, I looked at both the actors really quick. Um, yeah, John, John Mahoney, man, when I was watching the movie, the general, I, I kept thinking, I know that voice. Yeah. He sounds familiar, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and also I'm reading about him and it's, I completely forgot. Let's see. So he was born in England, but he's an American actor. Okay, okay. I was like, I don't remember him being having like an accent. No, you you know, we, and at the time of his passing, a lot of you know, uh, in memoriam articles mentioned the fact that. Uh, he, but he came over as an adult, and uh, I remember oh, really? one of the articles saying, "Yeah, he lost he." I don't know if he lost his accent or he completely suppressed his English accent, and I never ever would have thought that had I not read that in one of those recent articles. No way. He played Frazier's dad so perfectly as just a retired cop that that's just how I saw him. Exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. He, if you ever saw him moving about without his cane, it's like, wait a minute. I thought you. I thought. I thought he needed that cane. I thought that was the actor's <laughs> deal. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm so glad you brought those two guys up. Um, that was something that, I mean, I, w- I was researching and reading a little bit, but I kind of, I, I didn't concentrate on them as much i was looking at more of the main cast but then when i was watching the behind the scenes i was like oh yeah you know with with him and the uh in kent mansley as well yeah there's a lot lot, i don't remember their names but there's a lot of other names in this cast that i think have done um i think that have done other things that you you would have recognized they're not big names but i think if you research what they've done they they end up being oh yes you you say to yourself oh yeah yeah i can i remember that yeah they did such a good job casting this movie that all the characters uh i can't find any that are that seem out of place in terms of their casting or how they deliver their lines and dialogue it just it it just it's just a movie that just flows seamlessly and, and perfectly for me yeah, the only other name I see that I recognize is Cloris Leachman. Oh yes, that's a, an interesting fact for those that don't know. Is that uh, apparently she had a little bit of a bigger role, but they they ended up cutting um, oh. most of her scene out, or you know, Brad Bird ended up cutting most of her scene out, and she ends up saying like just literally one line in the movie, and I think it's yelling at Aww. Hogarth to stop talking. 
So <laughs> yeah, his mean teacher is is Cloris Leachman, but that's that's all she got to say. Yeah, otherwise known as Frau Blucher. Yeah, <laughs> she, she did. Uh, she did a great role in uh, in Ponyo, the Miyazaki movie. Oh, really? Yes, she's in that. Lily Tomlin is in that, and they they did excellent work. As uh, have you seen? Have you seen that movie? I have not. Oh, that's, I it, need to see that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a really big fan of, of Miyazaki's work, and um, um, he he's always writing very strong female leads and, and female characters that are that are great. I have two daughters, mm-hmm. so. Being able to expose them to, to cinema like that is is always a joy. And but but Cloris Leachman does a great. Uh, she's one of the old ladies in that movie, and she's she's great. In That's it. awesome. Yeah, yeah, she's great. She's great. She's one of she's one of my favorites for sure. Well, um, so so I guess next we should uh, go into the the plot a little bit. Um, would you prefer to to kind of take a scene by scene, or did you want to kind of do your best ofs? Um, I, I, let's, let's do, let's go scene by scene. Cause I, I, okay. Uh, yeah. I, I could go down that route. Okay. Awesome. So, you know, it kind of opens and, and I sort of, when I was rewatching this, I kind of forgot that it opens with that like sort of shipwrecky type scene, uh, with the old man witnessing the, the iron giant. Yes. And the, and thinking he's hit uh, the light tower. And I, it, it, the first time you see that movie, you know, you don't know what's going on. Um, right. But in rewatching the movie and, and seeing it, you know, on, on our bigger televisions these days, you know, it, the, the cool thing is you can actually see the giant in in the the comet, and as he's falling to Earth, you can actually pause it on that scene and get a very distinct silhouette of the giant in that fireball as it's falling to Earth, which I think is is a, is a nice touch. And um, and when when the boat hits him, when he's actually in the water, um, the use of the eyes as as lights. Um, was I think it was it was great. It was just yeah. one of my favorite scenes. One of, a great movie opening. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I it, it kind of as it started opening, I was like, oh, I don't remember this scene or <laughs> where is this going? And then, of course, uh, it leads into the the next scene with the the old man at the bar or at the diner rather, uh, you know, telling everybody the story. Yeah, and that's where we uh, we encounter Dean for the first time, and that's where you know I think you know it, it again. This movie does a great job just setting up the characters. You know these you know. Hogarth is an outsider. Dean is an outsider. Uh, Dean's line that, you know, if we don't stick up for the kooks, who will? It's just, uh, you know, it just, the, the writing is very tight on this movie, I think. And uh, it just, just does, does a great job of, of distilling who these people are in just a few lines. You know, obviously he overhears the conversation from from the old man in right. the diner, and that goes that gets him going and gets him out wandering. Oh, then he's home. Oh, that's a, a scene that I love. He's home watching television, mm-hmm. um, and he's he's about to see that super cheesy 1950s sci-fi movie that he's watching, um, which I think, given later in the movie. Um, the uh, the references to Superman, uh, I I'm pretty sure um, this is only a guess. I've never seen confirmation, but the design of that guy in the sci- sci-fi movie just screams Clark Kent to me every time yeah. I see this. <laughs> so well, yeah, oh, go ahead. Oh, I I love how you know his mom calls him. She says she's going to be late. 
but she stresses, you know, uh, what he's supposed to eat, what he's not supposed to do. And literally he goes, he says something like, I'm way ahead of you or something. And he's already grabbing Twinkies. I love yeah, that he does every, exactly. <laughs> Me too. It sets him up perfectly. He does exactly the opposite of, he, he does specifically what his mom told him not to do, all of it. To, to right. a tea. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's such a, such a kid thing to do to, uh, you know, I remember as a kid, like trying to turn on my TV really low. Um, my growing up, my dad always let me watch whatever. And he, he, this was kind of bad, but he would let me like stay up as late as I want. Like, as long as I went to school the next day, he was like, sure, do whatever. And would let <laughs> me like stay up super late and watch TV, which I told him as an adult, I'm like, I can't believe you let me do that. And he was like, I don't know. My mom let me do that. So I just kind of let you do that. But now that you say it, maybe I shouldn't have. Yeah. But when I was at my mom's house, it was like, I had to be sort of like a mastermind at, you know, turning my TV on very quietly or tiptoeing down the stairs to get a snack. So I really related to that part. Yeah, I lived in a small house growing up. I did the same thing. I totally get it. You know, bedtime around my house can, it, it's usually not too bad, but I'm usually, I'm the parent. They never go to bed when I want them to go to bed. And I'm always dealing with, well, not always, but I'm sometimes dealing with some tired kids in the morning. And I'm always saying to them, <laughs> this is why I want you to go to bed in time. This is not fun <laughs> for me. It's not fun for you. <laughs> <laughs> it makes so much sense as an adult, but as a kid, you're like, ah, I know. No. Yeah. And please, I just want to watch this. Just let me watch this one more thing. Okay. 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 Yeah. And the, and the fact that it's scary and she specifically tells him not to watch something scary. Yeah. That's just something every kid is tempted to do. Yeah. And then I think this, this leads us into the scene where, you know, the, the antenna gets bitten off. He goes and mm -hmm. checks it out, uh, climbs right up on the roof, middle, middle of the night, um, you know, just something he's used to doing. Um, but that, what I find interesting, and I think this sets up the, the whole Cold War thing, you know, we see the comic book on his on his chair, you know, the Red Menace, uh, li mm -hmm. literally spelling it out that, you know, the, the subtext for this movie is, is the Cold War. We're afraid of the Russians. We're afraid of – oh, yeah, we've Sputnik in the beginning of the movie. Another uh, call out to, um, you know, the – the time that they're in and what, what they're dealing with. Um, but he goes and grabs a gun, you know, that's, uh, and I think that's, that's setting up what we're going to see later on in the movie um, in terms oh, of the theme, you know, he, it, it's, it's just part of what, what it was like for him as a kid. I mean, a kid at his age, nine-year-old boy has, has a gun, you know, something scary is outside. He's going to go get that gun, tapes that flashlight to it. And then that's, that's how he approaches it. Yeah, he me. Yeah, that's true. And 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 when I was watching the behind the scenes, they were talking about the way that um, the director pitched this movie. He said, you know, what if a gun had a soul? And I think that's you know a really huge theme of the movie. And and so yeah, so him him grabbing that gun initially as a response to anything that he doesn't understand or doesn't know what it is, you know, plays a huge part of the plot later. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but so he he runs into the woods and and that's when he sees the robot for the first time and uh, the robot uh, is eating metal. <laughs> I remember right as he started eating metal, I was like, ah, I forgot he did that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's going right for the uh, you know the electrical towers. He's eating metal. Yeah. Goes, goes for the uh, the power station. Uh, gets all gets all tangled up in the electrical wires. Um, yeah, and then Hogarth, Hogarth saves him, and I think that's you know that that's obviously what what establishes the bond between these two. 
Definitely. Another thing they said in the documentary was that when the robot is, you know, sort of screaming, it's like the little boy doesn't hear a robot. He hears, you know, someone in pain. And that that's what makes him turn back around and go back and help him. Because he, he almost just leaves. Like, he's like, oh, thank goodness, yes. you know. He's wrapped up in those that I can leave now. But then when he sees the pain he's in, he goes back and he helps them. Yeah, and I, I love I love when the giant passes out, so to speak, and he's just there dormant and, and Hogarth climbs up him and drops a rock down his mouth. And uh, it's just it's it's perfect. And I think I love that scene. It's it's the first glimpse or what 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 I really glammed onto was the way that they decided to animate the giant's eyes. I love the fact that they're yeah. like, uh, to me, I, I want to describe them as flashlights behind like frosted glass. And I think it was, it was a good way to show their, you know, inorganic state, but still give it, give the, the giant the ability to express a lot of emotions using his eyes. Yeah, definitely. Because he doesn't say a whole lot in the movie. I, I think I read he only says like 53 words or nice. something like that. That's a, that's a good fact. Yeah. I think at that scene, he he's still it's still at night. He gets scared when he wakes up. He, he encounters his mom in the woods. And his mom, you know, as a parent now, I can totally relate to his mom totally freaking out, like coming home. Where's my son? Uh. It's to- power's <laughs> out. You're gone. And I find you in a random road in the middle of the woods. Um but then, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I've read, they don't show this in the movie, but I think it's alluded to, you know, his dad has passed. I think there's a picture of his dad on the nightstand in his room. And I, if I remember, I think he, he, he looks like he's climbing into the cockpit of a plane. So I'm assuming he died in, in war, probably the Korean war at this time. Um, so she's a single parent. She thinks, you know, something bad has happened to her son, but then he starts going off about this crazy story, which why wouldn't you go off on this crazy story? You just did meet a giant robot. But of course, to her, it's just another one of Hogarth's, you know, crazy fantasy stories. And she's just like, I don't want to hear it right now. Um, But I love and then you move into that scene where he tilts his head. And, you know, obviously we see Hogarth drawing the giant with his tilted head uh, later on in school, which I I, I love the callback and I love the, the transition scene to scene with that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I think even having his father, like you said, be a pilot and, and remember Hogarth, he grabs a gun. He also grabs some uh, like, you know, an army hat or a, a helmet. Yes, yep, so it's like yep. he's literally sort of replaying that. And 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 yeah, you're you're, you're absolutely right in that, um, you know, to his mother. I, I think that, again, that's something that maybe is more nuanced as you get older or for me anyway, you know, as a kid or even as a teenager, like that scene of her of her sort of dismissing him and saying you know uh, it's not now um I, I remember as a kid scenes like that used to used to bug me because I, I saw it as the kid but it's funny to see it as an adult and sort of have that different mindset of like can you imagine the stress she must have felt you know not knowing yes. <laughs> where he was and how scary that is and then on top of that he's being like kind of obnoxious. So <laughs> like uh, completely understandable from her, from her perspective. She's just relieved he's alive and, and wants it to end there um, and just takes him back home. Yeah. I, I like when I like, this is obviously a good example of a movie that makes characters relatable um, from both perspectives. Like, you know, she's acting as a mom would in a, in a situation like that. And he's acting as a kid would in a, in a, in a situation that he found himself in. So, you know, that uh, getting both perspectives done given justice in that way i you know that's just another thing that makes this a, a great movie no oh, for sure and so you, you mentioned he goes to school does that kind of lead into the next scene 
Uh, yes, he goes to school. Uh, that, I, I love the scene. There's so many little things that happen in all these scenes that I, I think call back to the overarching um, backdrop of, of what's going on. You know, hear the one kid say, you know, if we find it, we're going to bomb it to smithereens. Oh, that's right. Um, you know, what if it's what if it's made by the Russians or, you know, they say all these crazy things. And it's just another reminder of the of the time and the mindset that everyone was living in at the time. Um but yeah, then, you know, after school, we find him then. He, see, at this point, I, you know, you, you, after you see the movie a number of times, you start to think of the giant more as, as a friend of Hogarth or as, as E.T. Right. But at this point, his introduction, it's like he's like a giant pet because he doesn't really speak. And he's trying to trap him with like the food that he knows that he eats. So he brings metal. I got crunchy, delicious metal for you. And uh, it, it, it's great. Um, so, he, yeah, he meets the giant. Um, by, by trapping him, so to speak, um, or falling asleep while he's trying to catch him on camera. And then, uh, you know, he's, he's scared. He's really scared when the giant first appears. He doesn't know what's going to happen until he drops the, uh, the power switch from the, the, from the station. And the only thing he realizes, oh, you know, you, you saw me save you. Yeah, that's right. And, and I did want to mention really quick when we were talking about the school scene, um, also kind of bold to just go ahead and show like that Cold War duck and cover video. Oh, no, how could I forget that? Yes. That, I mean, hilarious, scary, and just, uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, that was a, a interesting tidbit about that. I, you know, Brad Bird's one of the singers singing that song and the oh, duck really? and cover song. <laughs> and apparently, I mean, I, I think there was something, if not that video, very, well, obviously not that video because they re-recorded it, but there was something very similar to that. Um, you know, if there's a nuclear war, duck and cover. Like that was that was the government's response to you if you should get hit by a nuclear bomb. Oh, for sure. I, I remember I was going to say my parents were, you know, uh, the age, like I think my mom was about maybe 27 when she had me and my dad 31. And they vividly remembered being kids and being told to like, you know, get under your desk and curl up into a ball and, and you know, how ridiculous that seems as an adult like that does nothing which they actually say in the movie yes so, yeah, the, yeah. the general exactly general says that later that's not gonna help us or whatever you know he's it's yeah. exactly something to that effect that there's nothing we can do to survive this for sure and like you know hearing that i obviously heard about it at school but it was really different hearing that straight from my parents and them talking about you know being afraid and what that's like and it, it really sort of you know, I, I mean, it didn't cause me to stay up at night and worry about it, but it, it made me think about it as a kid. So, so I think yep. that was like a really good scene. Yeah. Yep. And then, um, what, what happens next? He, uh, oh, he takes the giant home and then he, uh, he gets hit by the train. <laughs> yeah. That's where <laughs> I, I, he, this is where I see him as a pet. Like he's telling him, no, you stay like, you know, no following, which obviously gets called, called back to very, very sweetly at the end of the movie. Um, but see, I guess I, I hate to nitpick this movie and I suppose that there's probably explanations for things, but you know, he gets hit by a train and he breaks apart. But I was thinking about this today and I'm like, because there's different things that happen to him. Like he gets, he gets hit by a rocket later in the movie. He doesn't fall apart after the rocket hits him, <laughs> <laughs> but then he gets hit by a train and he breaks all the pieces. And I'm thinking, well, that's, that, you know, I can, I can extrapolate that that's probably like a defense mechanism in the robot. Like it, he didn't actually break apart so he couldn't function anymore. Like he got hit by this massive other force. So it, he came apart to, in, in effect to save himself. Um, 
and then he just simply put himself back together and he was good to go. Um, so yeah. not maybe not really something that's inconsistent with the movie. So um, kudos to, to the designers and, and the way that they thought this out, because I'm going with my explanation. <laughs> no, and I think, you know, narratively, I understand why it happens, because that, you know, him calling his parts back to himself, you know, number one makes a great visual. And then, you know, the way that this movie ends, it, it ties back into that as well. And and it also drives the plot forward when, uh, you know, after this incident. And I, I really love how Hogarth is like, oh, no, we're in trouble now. We got to go. <laughs> you know, it's like, you derailed a whole train, kid. Yeah, you're, <laughs> it's you're, a big you're, deal. You're, you might not get out of this one. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, this creates an opportunity for more people in the town to see this robot. Because remember, it started with one crazy old man. Um, but now, uh, you know, it's eaten a car at this point, right? Or has that happened yet? I I, th- I don't know if that's happened yet, but I, at, at the very least, this part is creating more witnesses. Yeah. Something that I think the kid is also picking up on, takes him back to the house um, after he gathers most of himself together. Yep. And I think he even has to lift up the house a little bit and let one more piece in, which is kind of foreshadowing for, you know, you don't see it right away because uh, the, the government guy comes to his house and so Colgarth has to leave really quick but the robot notices his hand is gone yes. yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah exactly and you're you're right I completely agree with you it, it made for a great visual and I, I actually I have no problems with the scene I, I I was only imagining that some people could nitpick things like this but then I offered oh no I mean you have a point logically I don't know that it makes sense but you kind of have to go with it for the movie. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, I, I totally, see it totally have gone with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same and here. it was one of the coolest scenes in the movie. Like I, I, you don't learn too much about the giant and we could talk about that in a little bit about, you know, there are certain stories out there. And in fact, in the, uh, there's a signature edition where they've added a new scene to the movie from the, the original theatrical release that gives a little oh. glimpse into the, the giant's, um, history and purpose, um, which I'm on the fence about. It was cool to get a new scene, but then I was also thinking, I, I kind of liked not knowing. It didn't actually provide much history, but it did give insight in what uh, the giant uh, was was there to do. And, he, you know, he actually was – can I talk about this now? Is this a good time to, to talk about it? Oh, yeah, yeah, anytime. Um, yeah, go for so it. So there's a – in the signature edition, there's two additional scenes added. One is – uh, a little bit more dialogue between uh, Dean, not, yeah, Dean and and Annie in the diner talking about Hogarth, mm-hmm. and they allude a little bit more strongly to the fact that uh, you know he's by himself um, and he's going through things. Uh, it's right before Dean goes out to buy the the bitten tractor, which is another classic scene. Like that's why I'm selling it. It's got a large bite out of it. <laughs> I love that scene. And forgive my my bad impressions. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> but the the next uh, the next scene that they added to the movie, which it was, I read about it, and I'm glad they finally got to do it for the signature edition. Um, when the giant is sleeping um, after his conversation about uh, souls later in the movie, um, he actually starts dreaming and he starts uh, broadcasting his dream to Dean's television, and it's this uh, this this crazy dream scene um, where you see you know dozens of giants invading planets 
um, destroying the planets and they give a little uh, foreshadow. In, in silhouette, you see the transformed giant like you see at the end of the movie. You don't see a fully rendered version of that, but you see uh, a shadow version of that. And I, I think if, had you not seen the movie before, you wouldn't necessarily know that that's what the giant himself would transform into. You just think it's part of one of the mm-hmm. invading armies that are sent uh, to planets to do whatever. And you still, you, you know, you don't, you still don't know too much about uh, the giant, but you do know that you, you're given enough information to know that he wasn't sent from wherever he originated with with good intentions. Gotcha. Yeah, I I agree with you. You know, I, I do want to see those scenes, and you know, as a fan that appreciates this movie, I want to see them. But I agree with you that it's good to keep it ambiguous because I think you know one of the big lessons of the movie is just because you don't understand something uh, doesn't mean that your first response should be offensive. And you know, you know, maybe diving too quick, but that's actually what triggers the robot. Um, and, and I think that's supposed to be, you know, an example of that's what triggers most people, (laughs) you know? Uh, uh, so, so I think that's a big lesson and, and by keeping him, uh, somewhat of a mystery, then, you know, you're kind of, uh, Hogarth's character development, I think is that he has a real understanding and kindness, not having all the information. And I think even Dean, uh, as the story goes on, shares that quality too. Absolutely, he 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 does. Um, agreed with all uh, everything you said there. Yeah. Uh, so okay. So I, I guess we're at the part where uh, was that? That was the two scenes, right? I just want to make sure you got to cover both of them. Yeah, and yeah. I think what what comes next is obviously you, you mentioned you know the, the giant loses his hand as he's reassembling himself in 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 the barn at home, um, and then we get that great scene at, at dinner with uh, with uh, with Hogarth and Annie, and I, I you know having having taken so many people to see it in the theater, I, I think that got some especially I took my mom to see this in, in one of my viewings back back in the day when it was out, and uh, that definitely got some of the biggest laughs from everybody yes. there is when he's he's praying and the hand is just wandering around the house just trying to figure figure things out and being you know at this point you want to say it, you know before he was more like a pet now he's he's learning a little bit more about the world he's made friends with Hogarth he's now acting probably like a precocious little toddler just trying to poke his way around and uh, it's just a great scene the hand and and how Hogarth incorporates his uh his yelling to the hand into into his uh, into his prayer that that yeah I love that <laughs> it, it, it gets so many good laughs from people with the first time they see it yeah I think earlier I had said the government guy was there but he's not yet this is the part where his mother calls him back to dinner that's why he left in a hurry but then he thinks he's got everything covered and that's when he starts to see the hand and hear it too so he's he's yelling. Uh, because he's trying to yell at the hand, but he's also like trying to mask the sound of the hand. Yes. Uh, so that's oh gosh, it's a really good scene. It is. It was. And it's yeah, and I, I really like how you know how much all the different scenes of him trying to sort of mask the sound of it and make excuses, and it's just funny because um, it, it seems like an impossible situation. I think the first time you watch it, you're like, "There's no way he's going to get this giant <laughs> metal hand out of there." And then it gets a no. little bit worse, right? Or go ahead. 
No, he does. He do, you're right. You, you don't think he's going to get through it. He does get through it. Um, and you get, you know, a couple of great comedic scenes. You get, you know, uh, Kent getting his head slammed in the door when Hogarth's in the bathroom. Um, you get an, yeah, I didn't think about this, but, you know, you mentioned how, you know, the, the, the strangeness of having like Dean unzip his fly in the beginning of the movie. Now you get a kid on a toilet in a movie, which is again, like a total, is a, just another thing that makes this movie different from, from typical animated fare. Uh, but yes. it works. It's totally believable. It's, it's the, real world and this is how you know obviously we don't have giant robots going around but this is how people people would react to situations like this yeah and 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 also i think it's in the midst of all this is when when kent comes in right like that just adds to the tension yes. oh no he was trying to let the hand out the door and then when he's about to let the hand out the door, that's when he sees Kent just slams the door in his face yes and then has to let him in and then he has to eat dinner with him and then that's when he goes up to the bathroom uh, to hide. The The hand is like hitting all the toilet paper. This is where it's kind of acting like a pet still. <laughs> uh, and he's knocking all the toilet paper down. And that's when Kent's head gets slammed in the door when they accidentally open the door. And he's like, Mom. Uh, but I also like that Kent tells his mom that, you know, that's why he should eat slower or something yes, like that. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> when he's making all those sounds. <laughs> and they, they gave, they made her give him such a look like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, yeah. this is not, I do not want to be hearing this right now. <laughs> right. She's like, I did not invite you. And this is also happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really great. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. He is acting to totally like a pet there because in fact, I think they even have the part that connects to, to his forearm, even like wagging itself like a tail as he's. Yeah. spinning that, uh, that toilet paper roll. It's great. Right. And then he finally gets out of there and, uh, you know, Kent uh, basically says he wants to question the boy a lot. And his mom says no to that. Right. Yeah. I think she's kind of like, no. <laughs> yeah. He, he even, he, she, he, Kent asks Hogarth if he'd seen anything strange. Um, oh, because we, we get a scene with Kent driving away with the gun and oh, that's right. He makes fun of his name, like Hogarth, who's like, who who would name their kid like that? Like, might as well call him Zeppo or something. Um, and then he sees, you know, looks at the gun and you know, figures the half half written name that's on the gun because it's been broken. He puts it together that that's Hogarth's gun. Goes back, and that's when we, uh, you know, we we start to see um, Hogarth start denying uh, that he saw, you know, we get that, you know, obviously we know what's going on. So we know that he's obviously lying and he's not doing a good job of selling his lie. Um, but it's, it's, it's very humorous to see that happen though. Yeah. And then his mom kind of blows his cover by saying he was really talkative earlier and talked about a giant Iron Man or whatever yeah, she and, says, like literally. Kent, they set Kent up as such a phony. He's like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> Yeah, I know he's supposed to be like this uh, this agent that sneaks around and does stuff undercover, but he's so obvious and so self congratulating that it you know it's impossible for him to blend in. He's, I mean, he's a great character. He's such a smarmy character, and he's effective in that he's so easy to hate. And I I do dislike mm -hmm. this character, and I'm I'm glad for the torture that Hogarth puts him through later. <laughs> Oh, that's right. Is that the next scene? Uh, when I think it's after. I think what? No, no. We I, we definitely have to talk about the next scene because I think. Okay. Awesome. It's it's the next scene is when he gets rid of Kent finally for the for the final time that night. He goes out to read the giant uh, a bedtime story, 
and we get some some good glimpses into into what influenced the creators of this movie. So, you know, we get a Will Eisner reference by showing the cover of the Spirit. Uh, we get like a snide remark about you know the the Boy Scouts Boys Life magazine. I think it's a Boy Scout. I was never a Scout, so I assume it's that. But eh, Boys Life, eh. But then we get you know the introduction of uh, we get a cover of Action Comics there in in Hogarth's profession mm-hmm. of of you know this is the guy you got to be like like he's like you he crash landed on Earth didn't know what he was doing but he only uses his powers for good um, and I'm you know I I haven't said this yet but I I am personally a huge Superman fan if I if I I, I don't I see he is my favorite superhero character like bar none like I was I was super young when Superman the movie came out so he's always been and I grew up on super friends um, I grew up in the 80s you know with Transformers I think that's why this speaks to me um, but this movie would be one of my favorite movies even if there were no Superman references but these Superman references like they were they were gravy or icing on the cake um, and it really plays a, a crucial role uh, later in the movie you know it's it, this movie couldn't have been made at Disney because of, you know, copyright reasons, you know, yeah. Warner, Warner brothers had the benefit of owning the IP of Superman so they could stick them in this. Um, and it's, it's, it's a great use of Superman as a concept, I think. Um, but it, I, I think the movie would have worked without it, but it, it works even better with it. Oh, for sure. Because again, to kind of go with the backdrop of the movie, um, you know, at this time in America, everyone's afraid of invasion. And uh, we know later that the robot's intended purpose was basically a weapon. But I think this part with Superman is like, there's, there's a couple different ways to look at his arrival, right into our country. Is it an invasion? Or is it, uh, you know, a refugee? And also, uh, what are his intentions? Are they good or are they bad? You know, it could be looked at in a couple different ways. So establishing that part is sort of selling like, you know, he tells a robot, you can, you get to be who you want to be. Yep, exactly. And not how people perceive you. And, I, you know, I think that's a pretty strong, clear message throughout the movie. And I agree. I don't think, I think they could have maybe done it at, um, if, I don't know, they had some other scene where they if Disney had done this and had some other scene where they set up a superhero type character and sort of, you know, alluded to, Oh, this is kind of like Superman analog. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it just wouldn't have the same impact. I mean, you know, no matter who you are, when you see Superman, you know who he is. And then also, you know, how, when he was created, the time he was created, you have all that kind of built in. So I, I think it's hard to replace that. And it just, it really sets up the the, the theme of the movie. I, I completely agree. And I'm glad you, I, I like that you touched upon some of the things that, because I've seen recently on, on social media, there's been a picture shared where um, uh, they call Superman a refugee and, and Wonder Woman uh, an immigrant. And, you know, because of all the, the things that are happening politically uh, in our country, I think it's a it's a good way to frame these these fantastic characters in, in ways that are, are meaningful to current political discussions that are going on. Um, and you, you, it, it, you're right. It has more impact today, uh, given what's going on. Um, you know, the way that you, you, you describe Superman in that scene, I think, is, is it makes it even more powerful than it was uh, almost 20 years ago. Yeah, I think because, you know, when this movie came out, uh, the that Cold War era was sort of, I mean, it had, you know, died down in like the 80s and, you know, now it's the 90s and it's not really like the same as it was between the 50s to the 80s, right? Um, so 
So because we're sort of past that Cold War freak out, it's hard to understand. But since we're living, you know, after this movie is like 9-11 and uh, we're just sort of in a different frame of mind of how we view, I think, you know, the outside, <laughs> like other countries. And so it, it makes, I think, the message of this movie more relevant now because that's kind of what it's about. But it's hard, I think, especially for kids, you know, to to see that movie or maybe as a teenager, I didn't have that frame of reference that I do as an adult, you know, because things are sort of echoing back to that time a little bit stronger. Yep. yep agree completely. I, and I, I, I like revisiting. There's a lot of movies I haven't seen since I was a kid. Um, I'd like to revisit at some point. Some of them become completely unwatchable as you get older. Um, <laughs> yeah. Movies like this, you have the benefit. They're a great movie to begin with, but then you you go back and you look at it with uh, your, your more aged eyes uh, as an adult and you see things uh, from a different perspective. And it's a joy when um, you get that different perspective and you're watching this movie or watching these movies. And there's a, there's a layer there that still that speaks to your current frame of reference that you didn't see uh, when you originally saw the movie. Um, so, and, and this is, this is a great example of that. I guess it, it, now that we're digging into the scene, there's one more thing that even speaks to the theme, you know, that the bad guy, the bad robots name on that comic is called Atamo. Um, so that, you know, calls, calls attention to the fact that, you know, we use giant robots in our, in our media to represent evil. You know, we have a giant robot doing evil things on this comic book. We've, we've also named him Atamo because we're afraid of the nuclear age that that's dawning all around us. So there's so much built into, you know, so many layers of subtext in these, in these scenes, not in your face, but if you're there and you're aware and you're paying attention, it's it's there and just just adds more to the movie. For sure. I feel like the more we're talking about it, the more I'm picking up on, like, I think when I was watching the behind the scenes and they were talking about, you know, what if a gun had a soul? And then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you talking about that, you know, the, him picking up the gun, you know, that's, that is definitely stuff that I feel like I miss that I'm sure I would catch if I rewatched it a few more times as an adult. But, um, but like you said, I, I like how subtle it is and how it's sort of something you have to revisit and pick up on instead of being, you know, like you said, in your face, it's not beating you over the head with it, but it's, it's definitely there. Yeah, surprisingly, I, I know so so few people saw this in the theaters when it was initially released, but I do remember there was backlash against the the scene in the movie where later on where they encounter the the hunters and the deer in the forest. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's a good it's a great scene, um, but there was backlash, be, you know, because they started call you know the uh, the gun lovers, the Second Amendment uh, lovers, even back then were you know clamoring that this was a, an anti-gun anti-second amendment movie um, <laughs> yeah, and i was just like oh come on like not everything is uh it, you know it's, it's but brad i did read unfortunately you know part of his motivation for making a movie with the theme of of what if a gun had a soul was was prefaced by unfortunately i guess his sister was was shot and killed by her former husband oh um, my gosh yeah, I, I in the in the past twenty years that this movie's been around, I never knew that until until this week. So, you know, that was his motivation for focusing on that theme. So, 
yeah, I can completely understand why he would put in there an, an anti-gun message. So, you know, because right. that's what they focused on. The fact that Hogarth pointed to the gun and said, you know, you know, they didn't kill it. The gun killed it, you know, and there's a nuance there that can be argued, but that's not the, the argument that that's being made with this movie. And now I, I completely understand why we learn a couple things about, about, the giant, like, yeah, Hogarth teaches him what death is in that scene because he doesn't understand. Like, he try, he goes to pick up the deer. Hogarth gets upset and tells him not to do it. And he says, why? Um, because it's dead, you know? They killed it with that gun. And then I think th- this is the first time we see his his eyes convert to red and, like, his, his automatic weapon programming kicking in because he – I don't know how he knows what the gun is other than, you know – this, he sees the gun and he has a reaction and he starts to get that first, you know, transformation sequence in, into himself as, as, as the actual weapon. Don't the two hunters see him and get scared and point their guns at him and that makes him even more? I don't think so. I, I think what happens, because I, I think they see him and they immediately drop their guns and run, which I thought was, was funny. Oh, okay, okay. But uh, you take your gun with you, I'd assume, in that situation. But I think na- narratively, they needed <laughs> the gun, one of the guns to be left behind. So they get scared, drop their guns and run. Um, but it, it, I, oh, that's right. That's when he says with that gun. For some reason in my head, it was like, I thought that they pointed their gun. At, I guess that'd be a little too direct. <laughs> but yeah, so so they run away. And so I, I guess it's the first time, like you're saying, that we see that the robot may have another purpose, right? Without that additional scene, it's the first time we see that he has some some kind of defense mechanism or or other uh, mode that he can slip into. Yep, yep, exactly. Because his, eye, his eyes go red. Uh, it, it, it looks like the aperture in a camera. Like his eyes, mm-hmm. his eyes change and get smaller and red, and he's he's about to transform. But he, to him, it's just like a passing phase at that point. It's not until later when they're horsing around at the scrapyard, um, and Hogarth actually, yeah, you know what? That's a good because Hogarth actually does point a gun at him in that scene. And that's when he yeah. he goes into it auto mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he actually fires at that point. Um, and that's when Dean uh, flips out and, and calls him a gun, and uh, you know warns. Which Hogarth. is hurtful to him because he he was told earlier guns are bad, yes. and then Dean calls him a gun. Like, yeah, why, why exactly? That's his reaction. He's like, no, 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 I'm I'm not a gun. Don't. And he's really sad, and you feel for him in that in that scene. He's like. But you're also understanding, like, there's something that we're not understanding about this robot. And there's obviously there's, there's other intentions than, you know, it's, it's not all fun and games. Um, I think we're, we're, we've moved into, you know, the, the last third of the movie, the last act. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I don't think we've skipped over much. I think we've skipped over a couple of, uh, you know, playful scenes. Like, my kids love the scene where he jumps into the pond and yeah. knocks all the water out and you get the animals and Dean floating around. Um and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think we've skipped over. Oh, we well, <laughs> we 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 missed uh, Hogarth taking Kent out on uh, on his tour of the town. Was, oh, mom, the sights! Come on, I gotta spend time with this guy. Yeah, that's when he slips him the the X lags and causes Kent for the rest of the movie yes. to sort of be running to the bathroom, which is great. <laughs> and I think that's another a callback or another indicator that we're we're dealing with a different time there. You know, they his dad is gone. They they need some extra money uh, to help run the house, so they're going to rent out a room. Um, so that's I mean, to me, that seems a little bit different than than what might happen these days. But 
Yeah, that's true. Maybe it's my bubble perspective right now, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, no. yeah, no, no, you're not a stranger <laughs> in my house with my kids. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, that, that's true. I, I didn't think about that part. <laughs> it's totally different watching it with our perspective now. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It's, 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 it's fun in a way. And uh, um yeah, so you know they set it up perfectly. The first encounter with Kent, you see the room for rent sign, and then sure enough, a couple scenes later, he's 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 jumping right on that. He's this is perfect. I know this kid knows about the robot. They got a room. This is where I'm staying, and I'm gonna suss it out. And I, I love that scene. He's like so annoying, like asking him like 50 times, like what are you doing? What you up to? Sport? And he calls him all these cheesy yeah. 50s nicknames. It's like, yes, Kent, you're effectively written as one of the most annoying characters in film history. <laughs> For sure. And I think it it really accurately captures how children can really pick up on your motive. I think I remember as as you know, like as a kid, your parents forcing you to introduce yourself to people and you're always like, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't <laughs> want to talk to this person and I can tell they're not interested in me. And I feel like kids are very intuitive in that way and they're not as polite about it, you know. <laughs> they, they they make it a little more obvious that they're irritated. And so I think that part's really funny. You know what? You've hit the nail on the head. Uh, I can recall so many encounters like that. You kid, kid, <laughs> Kids have built-in and very effective BS detectors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, they're not going to tolerate when they feel like you're being phony. Um, and you, you're right. They, they will, they'll call you on on it, especially at, at the very younger ages. They're just not going to have it. You need time to warm up to a kid. And if they've decided that you're um, not, who you're pretending to be, like if they're detecting that phoniness, then that's, that's pretty much game over. For sure. For sure. Well, um, let's see. So we were at, I think the junkyard, right. Or, or a little bit past, uh, you, you said the third act of the movie. Yeah. I think because yeah, I, I, I'm describing it as a third act because, you know, he has that, um, encounter in the junkyard where, um, well, first of all, they're, uh, they're playing around with, uh, the, the broken down car and he's spinning him around. And I'm like, I would totally have done that too. If I own the giant. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and they're playing, well, we get the, we get the call back to Superman in that scene. You know, he doesn't, yeah. Hogarth wants to play with, with him as a Tomo. He wants him to be the bad robot and the giants having none of that. He's like, I do not want to be a Tomo. He's like, Oh yeah. Well, what do you want to be? He's like, I'm Superman. And he finds the S um, and then, you know, Perkel, proclaims himself as Superman. So I, I always love that scene. And, uh, it, you know, I've had some, because I'm such a huge Superman fan, I've had uh, some of the friends that I convinced to go see it at the time, you know, they, their immediate reaction to me was, oh, I know why you love this movie because, because <laughs> of that. I'm like, no, no, that's, it's nice. I do love it, but that's, that's gravy to everything else that's, uh, that's going on in this movie. Um, but then he, he, you know, he wants to, to shoot at him even as Superman with the gun. And that's when the giant has his, uh, you know, his more full, um, not his final conversion, but his full convert, you know, his, his, his more uh, in-depth, he shoots the lasers out of his eyes at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, and he firing back after, yeah. after he's pointed at. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I was just saying he, he fires at him after actually getting directly pointed at with, with a gun after he knows what guns are and, and what they can do. For sure. And, and I get, I get the sense in both of the first scenes, at least that whenever he goes into that mode, he doesn't seem aware. It's almost like something else takes over. And I feel like that's part of why when he comes out of it, he's so shocked and disoriented and not sure why, you know, he's being received the way he is. 
And, uh, you know, he's again, he's really hurt by being called a gun. And but then, like, as you know, as 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 an outside perspective, you you do feel like, okay, if you were Dean, though, it's like a robot aims any sort of weapon at a child, you know, you're automatically like, okay, playtime is over. Um, this is something dangerous that we need to understand and examine, and you definitely don't need to be hanging out with them. Like you completely see it from from that perspective as well. Yeah, I don't fault Dean in his reaction at all. Um, yeah, and I think they, they, I think you, you're right though. They they the the interesting interesting thing about this character is that you know he's imbued with so much personality and warmth. But there's also scenes like this where you're reminded that he is a machine. Like we don't understand how it is that he's sentient and has feelings um, or does the things that he does. But <clears throat> I think that programming kicks in where he, you know, he, you know, I, I think you even see a rigidity to his his body language when he goes into that mode. So he's mm-hmm. clearly converting from, you know, the warm, sentient creature that we've we've seen in the movie to to something that is is ro- literally robotic and and programmed and just you know going on reaction to to the world that he's programmed to react to and yeah i think you're right he, he that's why he is so shocked and dazed when he comes out of it because he's probably not uh, aware of what's going on with him right and so you know the the robot runs away and the little boy um you know, is, is following him and and he's telling Dean, like, you don't understand. And he didn't mean to do that. And then Dean sees the gun and thinks about it and realizes it. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Dean figures it out. He's, uh, he's, he's reactive. He's reacting to the gun. Um, and then he, he gets on his, his Harley. And I, I had a motorcycle at the time. So this is one of the things that I really nice. I on him. Like, he's riding without a helmet, but he's also riding a really cool, like, I think like 30, 30s or 40s era Harley Davidson. So props to him. <laughs> so he gets, he gets on the motorcycle, he chases Hogarth down. Uh, I love the fact that it, you know, it, it immediately starts snowing. Um, so it's a good progression in, in showing how much time has passed. It must have been a couple of hours because, you know, we see them playing in the in the, in the the scrapyard without any snow at all. And then all of a sudden, you know, the giant's walking through like a couple feet of snow. Um, maybe a little nitpick. I don't know. But it, it's, it's, a good, it's a good representation <laughs> of, of, of the time that's passed. Um, he yeah. picks up Hogarth and, you know explains to him like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I, I know what you're going through, kid. You know, we, we misjudged. There's more to this that we need to figure out. So let's, let's go get him. Um, and then I think, yeah, then he's wandering through the forest and then that's when the kids fall off the roof in the town. Um, and the giant can't help but save them. So he hears the kids in danger, dashes back to the town and, and rescues the kids. And that, you know, town sees this happen, shocked, but they all, they all love him at this point. Dad's happy that he saved his kids. You know, everybody's smiling in that scene, but Kent, of course, you know, sees it from a distance and uses it to his advantage to, to again, totally skew the situation to serve his own uh, misguided needs um, and, and get the general to, to attack the town. Giant's just standing there, but, you know, the way he's screaming and hollering, you know, he's attacking the town. First time the the uh, the general sees the, the giant actually standing Oh, because we didn't we we didn't go over that scene where uh, where, where he's hidden in Dean's uh, 
barn as an art piece. (laughs) And I got to say, like, that's one of those things that like like that scene and, you know, how he convinces him that he's just a piece of art. Like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Of course you want to buy him. Here he is. Um, But that scene when, when, uh, when the army and the general leave um, and Dean tells the giant, it's one of my favorite scenes when the when Dean tells him he can finally relax and he kind of like sighs and starts like brushing all the crap off of him. Like anytime I'm in a situation, you know, that I don't necessarily like if, you know, a situation I don't want to be in, but I know I got to go through it just to get it over with. Whenever I'm done, like that scene always runs through my head. Like, I feel like I'm just like there rubbing the crap off my arms. Like, Oh, that's over. I'm done with that. (laughs) That's funny. That's awesome. Well, yeah, yeah. So, and and then later he he realizes he is real, and that Kent is onto something at least a little bit. But it's it's really shocking that Kent, you know, hears from Dean. He's got the little kid, and he thinks about it, and he says he killed him. Oh, it's almost like his his plan was well, that kid's probably going to die. That's just something that's going to have to happen. And later when he drops the kid or we accidentally kill the kid, I can just say the robot did it. Yep. Like that's how I read it. And I was like, man, that is, you know, that's where he crosses the line from being self-serving to being literally a villain. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. He's, uh, I mean, he's one of the very easy to, to hate this character because of, uh, because of that. And uh, I'd actually never thought about that before. That's uh, that, that is a good, a good point where he transitions into being uh, the, the full on lead villain in this movie. Um, yeah. He, he was really, I, I never thought about him having the, the, uh, the ability to, to sacrifice Hogarth in this way. He probably would have, uh, if things had gone the way he wanted them to go, uh, Hogarth would have died and, and he would have been okay with that. Yeah. Because he seemed very focused on, his status, the whole movie and like, like moving up the ladder in the military or, or in the government. Um, and, and, and he was losing all of that. And he saw like an opportunity to regain that. And ironically, the whole movie is talking about, you know, outside invaders, we've got to protect ourselves. And then he ends up being the one that calls the missile. <laughs> like, that's really ironic. <laughs> Yeah, he, he calls out, you know, in the beginning of the movie, uh, I, he calls out the Canadians as, as, a, as a source of where this giant may have come from. So, you know, it's just a, it was a, a funny mention of, of, of a, a neighbor that's probably least likely to attack us, but uh, right. maybe this Canadian <laughs> invader robot. Um, but yeah, he's, he's totally willing to, to sacrifice Hogarth and uh, it, totally focused on himself. Um, I guess if, if I had anything more that could be added to this movie i'd like to be i'd like to have a more fully realized uh scene to understand exactly what happened to to kent after this besides just um you know losing his job and and getting uh captured by uh the soldiers that are there i'd like to see fully you know what what happened yeah because i think the only i guess issue i have with this one scene right here is i have trouble understanding how he doesn't see the fact that if he calls a missile to strike it here like you know the the surgeon said that he's like you called the missile here we're here yeah <laughs> with the robot like and it's like it's like man could he possibly be that over focused i mean surely he knows <laughs> the outcome of of him calling that and then the irony uh in that moment of like the entire town processing like oh my gosh this is what we've been watching that video over and over and over 
And instead of some invading country, it's literally us launching it on ourselves. Um, yep, yeah. Yep. Um, I think we should go back a little bit. We, uh, Oh, okay. Sure. We sure. Missed, uh, um, we didn't talk about the scenes where, you know, he finally does encounter the giant again in front of, uh, the townspeople. Um, mm-hmm. and the giant speaking a lot more clearly now says to him specifically, I am not a gun. Um, that's right. It's a very yeah. sweet scene. Um, you know, Annie sees Hogarth with the giant for the first time. So she's fully comprehending what's been going on with her son and, 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 and this, and this robot that's there, you know, everybody's happy, but uh, you know, Kent gets them to fire. Um, and this is, I get, yeah, this is, a, so they fire the rocket. He tumbles over. Uh, they start firing at, uh, at him from the ground too. Cause you know, the giant, wraps his, his hands around um, Hogarth and starts to run uh, and they're chasing him. And uh, I think this is where he encounters a school bus. I think it is. And he slides off uh, the side of the mountain um, and we get that great scene. And now that we're talking, all these references to Superman, I, when you talk about them in sequence, you realize there's actually, you know, four or five good references to, to Superman. So he falls off and um, Hogarth taught him about Superman so he can use him as a reference point to, you know, this is how you fly. You got to put your arms uh, ahead of you like Superman. And just the joy on the giant's face when he when he learns how to, to control his flight is, uh, is is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, so, yeah, that so then we get the. Um, then we get the uh, the planes flying about and uh, and attacking him, and we have another moment of him almost uh, going into weapon mode. But I think he's more cognizant now of what's been happening to him, and he can actually turn it off himself because um, he he's, he he target locks on one of the planes, and he's about to you know go into that mode, but he you know he tells himself no and and brings himself out of it. Um, but then he's actually he's hit by one of the planes. It uh, falls to the ground, and that's when we get that scene where uh, he thinks that Hogarth is dead. Um, and it's a nice callback because he goes to pick up, you know, what we learn is the unconscious Hogarth, but to the giant, you know, he's reacting and limp the same way that the deer was. So as far as he knows, he's he's dead. So that really, that really, he's, but he, and, and I did watch this part again, and, you know, he he's overcome with grief um, initially, and he's just there very sad. Um, but then he gets attacked when when the the army shows up again, and that's what sends him into full on uh, weapon mode. The the dent pops out of his head, and he converts into that great uh, past, pastiche of of sci fi, fifty uh, sci fi uh, weaponry. Uh, it's just just a just a, a great scene, a very emotional scene. Yeah, yeah, it has a lot of impact, like you said, calling back to that earlier scene with the deer. I, I didn't even think about that. Wrap, wrapping up the plot of the movie, um, he. Uh, you know, he, he goes into that mode um, and he's just unstoppable. Like, I mean, it's, it, they, they literally, I think that, you know, g- the general says there's nothing that can stop this thing. Um, and we get a lot of uh, examples of, you know, his, his cool sci-fi abilities. Like he, he puts out that bubble that can just make a tank disappear. Um, you know, at, right before he's uh, about to destroy that, uh, that ship that's out at sea, um, if not for Hogarth distracting him, he would have sent out another like I don't know, energy or plasma bubble that would have just obliterated that ship. Um, 
so he's really yeah i, I can't imagine what uh, a planet <laughs> would do if one of these showed up doing what it was actually programmed to do right exactly yeah i want to say i don't know if you've seen the new um there's a new Lost in Space on Netflix that, they, that they've done. Yes, yes, yes. It's so good. I'm, I'm on like episode two. Okay, okay. There are, um, yeah. there are, I won't spoil anything, but there are callbacks that even my kids have noticed um, to, to oh. this. So we have uh, Will Robinson and his new robot. You know, you can see scenes later in the series that are very Hogarth and, uh, and Iron Giant-esque, so to speak. Oh, that's really awesome. I look forward to seeing yeah. that. Yeah, I'm only a couple episodes in, but man, I have loved what Me I've too. seen so yeah, far. Me too. We're, we're a little bit further yeah. ahead, but uh, yeah, my, my kids and I just, we, we love it. Like, my daughter asked to watch an episode tonight, but uh, you know, the whole bedtime thing kicked in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Understandable. <laughs> um, but very, this movie, uh, I, I saw one of the, the your, one of your commenters say that uh, they've seen grown men weep at this movie and uh, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's very true <laughs> the, you know we get we we get that sci-fi um self-sacrifice uh of the hero uh in this movie and it's it's well deserved it's well well written well played um and it's very very emotionally uh, effective on, on how the giant um calms down after hogarth encounters him and gets him to transform and then uh, makes the decision that uh he's the one that can can stop that stupidly sent missile because of kent right and and what's interesting about that too is that you know he literally does something superman would do and has done in the comics right yes yeah, yeah. and yeah he he sends himself up there and 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 um sacrifices himself uh, against the nuclear missile. Yeah. And I like, but I do like how at the very end you get that sort of end cap with the little, the little bolt that comes back. I agree. That, uh, that, that the general gives him actually. And then, and then it, it starts moving again at the very end. I thought that's kind to kids <laughs> watching this, you know, to give them that little reprieve at the end. Oh, he's alive. He's alive. Yeah. We, we see his head uh, and on the glacier in Iceland, he actually, you know, tilts. I mean, that's another cool design thing about this robot. I mean, he, he can't actually bend mm-hmm. his mouth, but I love the way that they designed um, the mouth or the jaw apparatus so that they could tilt his head in different directions to, to give him the illusion of smiling. Um, that was For just sure. a, just a great a great touch, and they use that very effectively at the end to tilt his head and get him to smile for the camera. Um, I mean, I guess a more cynical person would call it cheesy, but I I, I loved it, and I, I think you're absolutely right. Very kind to, to kids who are seeing this to to know that he's he's out there, and even and as an adult, I loved it. But I also I get a lot of people wanting to know like. Well, that's clearly the setup for a sequel. When are we going to get Iron Giant Two? What what happens next? And I I don't need it. I yeah. don't want it. Um, I don't. I, I hope I'm not being selfish for anybody who's out there who wants to to see Iron Giant Two. But I think it uh, it wraps it up nicely with a nice bow on it. Yeah, I think I think if you see more after that, it's going to get more complicated. And I think that the story wraps up in a way where everyone learned their lesson and there's nothing more to go, you know, explore. I, I, I think it's a nice, neat, like, bow wrapped up at the end. Yep, yep. I, uh, I, I, you're right. In the, in the next movie, they, they'd have to delve into more of the backstory or what happens next. And, and, and a good writer could create a great story, I'm sure, but I, I personally – I don't need it, and I doubt that there's a, a, a call for it. Um, 
I was going to comment when you mentioned, you know, the the one piece given back to Hogarth from the general. Um, you know, I in, in in our real world, would that ever happen? I doubt it. We'd have <laughs> we'd have a team of uh, military scientists pouring over that thing, seeing what they could what they could learn, and we'd have probably you know dozens of people out searching the globe for what happened to the, to the parts of the giant after the missile hit it. Yeah, it's sort of like maybe a, a child's um, perspective on what would happen next. You know, yeah, yeah, an idealized version of what would happen next. Yeah, I think you're right on that. And I love I love the statue at the end. Uh, although I have to critique that Dean didn't get uh, the fin completely right because you know they <laughs> they designed the fin to be his nose, but Dean's statue had the fin stop you know above his eyes. Um, I didn't notice that. <laughs> it's well, you got to see the movie dozens of times to start picking up on these little things. <laughs> I guess he's going from memory. There's not a lot of pictures. That's true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. But that's cool too, how they tie in Dean's artistic talent to to that, and they they also drop sort of a little hint that that they're married now, that he and his mother are married. Yeah, and, they got together. Yeah, um, I guess I, I, reading some of the backstory about that scene, I think you know, as we talked about earlier about how uh, this movie was produced, you know, with a tight time schedule, way under budget for typical movies. Uh, in that scene, if you you know, the more you see it. Um, the only thing animated when the kids pile up on Hogarth is literally Hogarth's arm, like waving every other, every <laughs> other kid is like totally static in this pile of kids. Um, I'm sure for budgetary <laughs> reasons, you know, that's, that's all that they could get yeah. to in that scene, which looks funny once you notice that and, and know about that. Um, but I, it never dawned on me in the first, you know, half dozen times I watched this movie. Oh, for sure. And they're also hinting that he's like popular now because in the early part of the movie, he's sort of getting picked on in school for thinking ro- this robot exists. And yeah, stuff. You, no, yeah, absolutely right. They're calling him names, dweeb. And oh, yeah, he was promoted a grade. I don't know if that's mentioned in the movie or something I read or saw in the documentary. Oh, no. He, and when he's having his espresso uh, spaz out, which is another hilarious scene, um, oh, <laughs> when yeah. he's hanging out with Dean at three in the morning um, and, and drinking too much espresso, uh, one, of the th- one of the things he spouts off really quickly is uh, if they just did the homework, you know, they could get promoted and move up a grade. Is there any more coffee? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's now that you say that too, that's why in that scene when they're watching the movie, all the kids are like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And he says, well, if a bomb comes, like we're all dead. Like he's kind of a know-it-all. And, uh, and, and then he starts telling him about the robot. And they, I think they're just, those kids are just over him at that point. <laughs> but then by the end of the movie, I mean, he was right. So everything he said was right about the bomb, about the robot. <laughs> Absolutely. And he's, he's the kid who had the giant as his friend. So yeah, he's, uh, he's made his way into the, the rest of the, he's made his way into friendship with the rest of the kids after that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody sort of starts out as a loner, or all the main characters do, and by the end of the movie, they're kind of all connected. Yep. I guess a big giant robot coming into your town uh, does that. <laughs> yeah, I think, and that's I, for me being being an '80s kid. I think because I was trying to to think, you know, what is it about this movie that that really keeps me uh, going back to it? And what, what do I love about this movie? And why did it speak to me so strongly when it first came out? You know, I was a 
big, you know, Superman fan already mentioned. Uh, I was a big Transformers fan. So I just, these just giant robots, sentient robots. Uh, we get it all here. We get Superman, we get a giant robot. Uh, we get, uh, a, and E.T. was another uh, favorite movie of mine. So, you know, I think people may think, say things negatively about the comparison to E.T. or, you know, although I don't hear too, too much of that these days. I did hear it a few times. But I think that's one of the reasons that draws me to this is that type of story of, of um, the, the visitor from another world uh, befriending someone here and watching that relationship grow and, and coming to an understanding that doesn't matter – how different you look or where you've come from. Um, there's a connection to our reality that binds us together. And we can find that even, you know, across the, the vast distances of space and time. Um, so if it can happen in, in outer space, in, in a, in a setting like this with aliens and robots, it can happen with people from different continents. So it's, it's something to, to take to heart. For sure. And I agree with you on the E.T. thing. Um, you know, growing up, E.T. was a big movie for me, too. And uh, I, I can only see that as positive. And I, I think, you know, a couple years ago, I felt like people were starting to, I don't know if the right word is criticize E.T., but sort of like, oh, we're over that nostalgia now. I mean, it, and it seemed like people younger than me maybe haven't seen that movie and don't have that same connection that I did being born in the 80s. Um, and so they, they see it as something like older that they don't really relate to. And man, you know, that's where I have to say like, thank God for stranger things and ready player. One. Like this nostalgia that we're sort of this wave of nostalgia that we're in right now, because I think it, it helps people of this generation sort of understand why those stories like resonated so much. And so I think that connection to that in this movie is actually like you're saying a really positive thing. Yeah, I, I think it only does it only services the movie in in that regard. I think it I, I think the comparisons are are apt and I and I think they're they're helpful. I don't, I I I disagree with anyone who critiques it because of that. I I think the type of story that is told is similar and and it it's it's a similar story because it's it's a story that works. Um it's it's a it's a right. model that works for the the um, it's an architecture that works for the type of story that they're telling. For sure, for sure. Well, I guess you answered what keeps you coming back to this. <laughs> I, I may have, uh, yeah, I've thought about that question. Yeah, that's awesome. No, no, I, I, I really like that answer. And, you know, honestly, when I started out researching this and thinking about this, even tonight, I, the, the connection between how this movie kind of relates to us politically right now did not occur to me until we were talking through it. So I, I really love that about movies like this that sort of have these layers and nuance to them that you can kind of go back and revisit over and over and, and see different, you know, aspects to it. Um, I mean, I think that's the mark of a, of a great movie that, that ability to go back and analyze it and, and, uh, and, and see those things and, and sort of communicate these big ideas, you know, through a, through a movie that has a, a robot and a little boy. I think that's pretty incredible. I, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. um, the, the hallmark of great cinema is to, to get ideas. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not really one to philosophize about you know, <laughs> cinema, but I, <laughs> but, but you're, you're a hundred percent right. A, a good movie will, be up for discussion. And, and look, we've, we've talked for a long time about uh, a 90 minute animated movie from a pretty much a defunct animation studio. Um, still relevant, uh, still has things 
um, that can drive a discussion about the world that we live in today. And like you said, that's, that's, that's the homework. For sure. And so what would you say to someone that's never seen this movie before? Like, how would you pitch it? Well, I, I would tell them just to, just to watch it. I mean, don't let the premise, because it's, it's, I think it's kind of a hard sell, the premise, if you're not, first of all, into animation or, you know, into science fiction or robots or, you know, ostensibly what's, what's a kid's movie. Um, I tell people just to give it a chance. And I don't think that I've ever encountered anyone who's watched this movie that, that didn't like mm-hmm. it. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I wouldn't tell people uh, too much ahead of time because there's just a certain joy that I met, that, that I love upon, that I loved about seeing this movie for the first time um, that I want them to experience. So, I mean, I would tell them, I would try to tell them as much about the movie as I knew going into it. Um, And if I feel like even that much information would be something that isn't appealing to them, I'd say, even though, you know, that, that, that might not be your, your typical um, type of movie, give this movie a chance. uh, You, you won't be disappointed. Um, And I, I can't say that I know anyone who hasn't, you know, teared up or, or, or cried <laughs> at, at the end of this movie. It's, it's just, it really a, an effective movie that way. For sure. I was going to say, you know, you mentioned you haven't met anyone that didn't like it. I, I would even venture to say, I haven't met anyone that's lukewarm on it after seeing it, you know, <laughs> yeah, like usually you like it a lot. Um, yeah. I would say, you know, one big sell that I hadn't thought about before I started researching it is, I mean, if you like movies like the Incredibles and Ratatouille, I mean, this is how he got his start. Um, and so that's, you know, one, one reason to see it. And also the fact that the movie kind of, as we talked about in this episode, that it, it breaks the mold a little bit. It goes a little bit off script. It goes a little bit deeper than, than some of the other children's movies do. So there's definitely something there for someone who's maybe not wanting to see specifically just a kid's movie. It's, it's not just a kid's movie. Kids can certainly enjoy it because it, it, you know, it's, it's aimed at them, but I think they put enough in it for an adult audience as well. It, it kind of hits everybody um, in the way that, uh, you know, E.T. did and, and some other great movies like it. So, so yeah, I mean, I would just say like, it, it's a great movie and, and, and I agree and don't, don't give them too much information about it. <laughs> so, um, so that they can kind of discover this stuff on their own, because <clears throat> I think the, uh, the things you discover as the movie goes along, they're very rewarding. And so, not knowing too much going in really helps with that. I, I think. I agree, and I, I would I would uh, I would take what you're saying and and definitely use that in my pitch to people. And I, <laughs> I guess based on the conversation that we've had, what I would now probably formulate into my pitch is that I would tell them to you know pay attention to the details. Like there are a lot of details in this movie that are are only going to enrich your experience. But that's maybe something I would tell them on their their second or third viewing. True, I don't want to like burden them, you know, too much with having to, to, to dig for all of these, these details that add to a lot of the, the, the context and the discussion that you and I have just had, but it's there. And if they're willing to go back again, I, th- I think they'll just be more rewarded um, up with, with more viewings. Definitely. Well, Ron, this has been really fun. It's been very 
I think educational in a way. <laughs> I feel like I've learned a lot about this movie uh, from researching and from talking with you. So I, again, really appreciated that you picked this um, and wanted to thank you for coming on the show and, and give you an opportunity now to kind of just plug uh, yourself on social media or anything else that you kind of wanted to, to bring up. Absolutely. No, thank you for having me. I had a ton of fun doing this too. Um, it's always great when uh, I can speak for a long time about a movie that uh, I've loved for a long time. Um, it's not a movie I saw as a child, but uh, it still spoke to me uh, obviously very loudly, even even as an adult the first time that I saw it. Um, I'm glad I get to share it with, with more and more people. So yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge social media presence, but I do have a, a Twitter handle. You can follow me at Ronald DeMarco. I'm happy to get some more followers and uh, increase my, my presence. So thanks for having me, Lisa. It was, it was great. Awesome. Thanks again. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. It was great having Ron on to discuss the Iron Giant. I did uh, cut out some of our political talk on there just because I'm trying to keep things kind of neutral on the podcast. But if you want to hear some more behind the scenes stuff, please feel free to reach out to us um, and we can discuss more theories on the movie with you. Anyway, if you guys have any feedback about this episode or any others, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter under AYA Lisa Cosplay. I'm also on Instagram under AYA and as a Nancy AMI Lisa or in our closed Facebook group. I love that movie. Our group is closed, but just send a request and I'll add you. It's just a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films, judgment free. My only rule is keep it positive. And if you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. And if you leave a positive review on iTunes, you'll be entered to win a $20 gift card to movie theater chain of your choice. Right now we're at 29 reviews and I'll draw again once we get to 30. So leave one today. Uh, Thanks so much. And I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you.